This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Welcome, Health Plan Alliance members, to the May edition of our Policy Unpacked podcast. I'm Dennis Bolin. I, of course, work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. And with me is our good friend, Chris Condolucci. Hi, Chris. Hey, Mr. Dennis. How are you, sir? I hope you're well. Um, Hope you've been enjoying some spring weather, although that might not be the case for you down in Texas. Wanted to give a shout out to mothers with a happy Mother's Day a couple weeks back. And I'm looking forward to jumping in some policy and regulatory discussions. I'm looking forward to our discussion, too. And you're absolutely right, Chris, about that spring weather. Here in Dallas, we went straight to a string of 90-degree Days. I know some folks listening in on the call might have even experienced some late snowstorms. So, you know, just like the weather fits and starts, hurry up and wait, that might be a good description for Washington, D.C. right now, too. Uh, sure. Example number one is when we last spoke, you had mentioned you had lost a bet yes. uh, about when the federal portal was going live. Did you place another bet since then? Have there been some uh, recent developments? No, I, I kind of quit while I was ahead on my bets. But interestingly enough, I would have been wrong had I placed a second bet. Because as we discussed in our last podcast that you bring up, Dennis, I was guessing April 1st would be the go live date for the federal portal. Well, April 1st came and went with no go live. I was then suggesting maybe May 1st would be a good go live date. Well, interestingly enough, April 15th. So Dennis, they split the difference and the go live date was April 15th. So not April 1st, not May 1st, April 15th. So as we speak today, the federal portal is live. April 15th, well, I've got some catching up I need to do then, Chris. So maybe a place for us to start is with what are you hearing on how stakeholders are reacting to the portal finally going live? Yeah, and it's an excellent question. And, you know, there there has been some days and weeks between April 15th and now when our podcast is uh, being released. And there has been a lot of discussion among providers payers, those organizations that are serving as federal arbiters called independent dispute resolution entities or IDREs, and also HHS. So there has been a number of discussions among all four of those stakeholders that I just mentioned over the past three or four weeks, a a number of hand-wringing, a number of complaints, and a number of pointing fingers at each other. And, And what I mean by that is, so First, HHS responded uh, along with the portal going live with an announcement saying if a provider and a payer had their dispute in what's called the open negotiation period where the provider and payer are supposed to sit down and try to negotiate out a final payment amount, if the 30 business days associated with that open negotiation period had already been exhausted before the April 15th go live date, HHS gave those parties 15 additional days to file an arbitration claim or to initiate the IDR process. So they were given extra time. 
post April 15th to initiate a federal IDR. Now, that was welcomed by many of the providers, for example, whose disputes have been piling up because the federal portal has been delayed for such a long period of time. Now that we have the federal portal live, and now that we are generally past this 15 days, everyone else who wants to now go to federal IDR has the normal four days to initiate the federal IDR after the open negotiation period ends. Now, what's also interesting, Dennis, this is something HHS announced to the providers and payers and IDREs, which has led to some hand-wringing and pointing of fingers, is there's limited functionality, or better stated, the federal portal has limited functionality at the start of this entire process. And what I mean by limited functionality is much of the federal arbitration process is going to be run outside of the federal portal. For example, providers and payers are required to pay a federal arbiter a fee for the federal arbiter to hear the particular dispute. Well, HHS has said the providers and payers are not going to pay that fee on the federal portal. Instead, they're going to pay that fee outside of the portal. And most of these federal arbiter organizations out there have set up their own website or their own webpage on their website to accept those fees. So it's one example where folks thought that we could use the federal portal to do certain things like pay the federal arbiter. Well, here you can't do it through the federal portal because that functionality is not there yet. In addition, there are certain information that the providers and payers must send and submit to the federal arbiter, this IDRE. And all of us thought that that information would be submitted through the federal portal. Well, again, HHS has told us, no, 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 everyone. You can't use the federal portal because we don't have functionality to accept that information. So instead, providers and payers, you must send that information outside of the federal portal to the providers and payers. And how that process will work is the federal arbiter will email the provider and payer saying, hey guys, it's my understanding that one of you have initiated federal arbitration. You must now send me your offer and all of your information supporting your offer so I can make a final payment determination. And in that case, again, the provider and payer will then email back the federal arbiter all of that offer and supporting information. So it's just interesting how the federal portal, while live, much of the process is being uh, uh, transacted outside of it. Now, the last thing I'll say, Dennis, is when it comes to pointing of fingers, many of the payers are saying, hey, HHS, the providers are not playing by the rules. They are not giving us the appropriate information when it comes to contact information when we're supposed to negotiate or who we're supposed to talk to if we as a payer are taken to arbitration by a provider. And so without that information, we as a payer can't do anything. Well, the providers are actually turning around and saying, no, 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 HHS. It's not us that's being the bad actors here. It's the payers. They're not providing us with the appropriate contact information. And also they're not providing us with the appropriate information on how to develop the qualifying payment amount, which is this magic in-network median rate that we've discussed in prior podcasts and our briefs. 
that actually is kind of a baseline for purposes of determining what could be a final payment determination amount. So this qualifying payment amount is very important information. The providers say, look, the payers are not giving us the appropriate information. So we, the providers, don't know what we should be doing in this arbitration process. So unfortunately, notwithstanding the fact that the federal portal is live, it's still a bit of a mess, Dennis. Well, Chris, you're going to get tired of me using uh, the phrase hurry up and wait and fits and starts, but it's the best description that I can come up with right now for what you're just describing. Yeah, it's appropriate. It sounds like a lot of what we counted on just hasn't come through. Sure. Another example is, wasn't the Fed supposed to issue updated guidance relating to the federal arbitration process? And I'll use that word updated, you know, with air quotes around it, because I thought that the guidance was supposed to come out before the portal finally went live. Yeah, well said. And I like the air quotes around the update, and we'll put a more little color to that in a moment. But yes, Dennis, in response to the Texas court ruling that came down on February 23rd, that invalidated the rebuttable presumption standard and injected a bit of uncertainty into the federal arbitration process, the federal department said, hey, we're going to issue updated guidance in response to this Texas ruling. And then the federal portal will go live after we issue that guidance. Well, we never got any guidance. The federal portal went live, but we did get some form of guidance contemporaneous with the April 15th go live date. And in truth, that guidance, and this is why we're using the air quotes, wasn't necessarily an update per se. I mean, maybe folks, you know, everyone can interpret things differently. I personally look at it more as a revision or revised guidance. And what I mean by that, Dennis, is back in December of 2021, the federal departments issued about a 41 to 44 page, I'm forgetting the number of pages, long document for providers, payers, and IDREs explaining how the federal arbitration process and the overall federal surprise billing process is supposed to work. Well, in that document, as of December 21, the federal departments explained how the rebuttable presumption standard worked. And I'm not going to go into detail on that because we've detailed that in prior podcasts. But again, that rebuttable presumption standard was invalidated by the Texas court. So the federal departments had to respond to the Texas court invalidating the rebuttable presumption standard. So that meant that the federal departments had to go back into its existing guidance that it issued back in December of 2021 and revise it. And what were the quote unquote air quotes revisions that were made? Well, the revisions that were made were any references to the rebuttable presumption standard and any references that the IDRE is required to look to the qualifying payment amount, this in-network median rate as the final payment amount was taken out of that guidance. And instead the guidance simply says, hey, IDREs and providers and payers, all the IDRE is supposed to do is take into account the qualifying payment amount, as well as credible information that is sent to the IDRE by the provider. And that credible information can include things like teaching hospital status, complexity of the service that was rendered, and patient acuity, training of the provider, which are all evidence that the providers would submit in order to say to the IDRE, hey, you should pick my higher offer as opposed to the qualifying payment amount, which is going to be lower when it comes to arbitration. And all HHS is now saying is that an IDRE is supposed to look at 
all of those factors. And so the last two things I'll say, Dennis, because this goes back to something we've said in our podcast last month and something we've said in our recent briefs. There's been a lot of confusion around the Texas court case, this so-called updated guidance, what I'm calling revised. The guidance did not say, the revised guidance does not say that an IDRE is prohibited from looking to the qualifying payment amount as the final payment determination. An IDRE can do that on their own if they so choose. In addition, the guidance did not say that an IDRE has to give equal weight to the qualifying payment amount and the credible information. So it's really up to the IDRE on how they want to weigh these different factors when it comes to making a final payment determination. And the reason why I reiterate this here is because, again, a lot of folks in the provider community and just even in the payer community are just trying to figure out, you know, what are the rules of the game when it comes to the federal arbitration process? At least we know a little bit now based on the revisions made, but there's still some confusion out there, Dennis. Yeah, still a lot of uncertainty that is leading to confusion, and it's hard to know which direction to take. Because, Chris, you've mentioned to us several times that the new surprises billing requirements are just one piece of a much larger, more aggressive push toward increasing the price transparency. And, of course, that has a lot of attention being paid to it, too. And to that end, we have the transparency and coverage regulations that require uh, us as insurance carriers and our self-insured plans that we service to disclose our in-network rates and out-of-network rates and allowed amounts on, on a public website through, again, I'm going to use air quotes here, a machine-readable file. I know that's causing a lot of angst among our members. What does machine readable mean? Who's actually going to be interested in going out there? How do you actually make it available to folks? And yet the public disclosure of these files is slated to start, if I have this right, on July 1st. And we know how quickly time can pass. That's going to be up on us in, you know, in just a matter of weeks. It doesn't seem like the feds are in any mood to announce a delay. So we can't count on that. So I say that because on, on April 19th, instead of announcing a delay, the feds issued some frequently asked questions that explain how alternative reimbursement arrangements uh, are supposed to work, how they should populate, how the plans would populate their in-network file with that information. That gets pretty complicated. So, Chris, can you walk us through those FAQs and what we really need to pay attention to? Yeah. And before I even dive into the complexity, you know, it is important to emphasize what you just said about July 1st. You know, that is the effective date. And it does not appear that the federal departments are going to further delay that July 1st effective date, which has led to this angst. And almost uh, the angst is at a fever pitch now because we're a month and a half away from July 1st. And a lot of folks have been wrestling with, you know, these machine readable files and the schema, as they call it, or the format that HHS has developed to which the payers are required to populate the schema or the format with the appropriate information. And there's a lot of questions that are flowing from, well, I'm a capitated arrangement, so how do I populate my in-network file? Or, hey, I'm a reference-based pricing arrangement. 
where, you know, I don't have a network or I might have a very loosely developed negotiated rate base or base negotiated rate. How am I supposed to populate my in-network file? Uh, You know, you have the traditional carriers who obviously have their in-network rates already contracted with providers. That's a little bit easier. But when you have tiered networks, when you have self-insured side of things, when you have leased and rented networks, um, again, there's a lot of questions of how does that particular plan sponsor or TPA, in this case, let's say it's a carrier that has an ASO agreement with a self-insured employer, how does the machine-readable file get posted on a public website? Whose public website should it be posted on? So it's it's all of those questions that have been swirling and, and again, leading to this angst fever pitch. Instead of going into detail on some of the stuff that I just said, let me d- dive into the complexity to your question specifically. And if folks ever have any questions, post our podcast. You know, we're always open to fielding questions, so please feel free to email us. But to your question about these FAQs that were issued on April 19th, As you said, Dennis, instead of announcing a delay, the federal departments basically said, hey, guys, July 1st is coming, so you better start getting your act together. And if you are an alternative reimbursement arrangement, meaning a reimbursement arrangement like a capitated arrangement or an RBP plan or something otherwise, like a value-based plan design, that actually pays a provider after a service is rendered. The guidance actually still said to these type of arrangements, you must include some sort of information on your in-network rate file. And a perfect example of this is an arrangement that pays by a percentage of bill charges. Well, obviously, if you have a percentage of bill charges, you don't know what the dollar amount of the reimbursement is going to be until after the service is rendered because you don't know what the claim is until the claim is submitted and the service is rendered. But... An arrangement knows what the percentage of bill charges they're going to pay or that they've negotiated with the provider. So, for example, let's say the arrangement has a 70% percentage of bill charge based negotiated rate. Even though you don't know the dollar amount until after the fact, the federal departments in these FAQs said you must include the 70% of bill charges on the in-network rate file. So that is a piece of disclosure that you must include before a service is even rendered. And that was a message being sent to these alternative payment arrangements to say, you can't just say we can't populate our in-network rate file because we don't know the numbers until after the fact. HHS is saying, no, no, no. In the interest and the policy goal of disclosure, you must at a minimum tell us what the base negotiated rate is. And then similarly, if you're, let's say, a reference-based pricing arrangement or a value-based Uh, design that may not have something as neat as a percentage of bill charges, but you still have a formula, a methodology, some sort of variables that are used to determine what the ultimate reimbursement amount is. The federal department said, hey, you arrangements, you can't plead ignorance here and you can't say that you cannot populate the in-network file. What you have to do is include five sentences or however many sentences it, it takes to explain your formula, your methodology, your variables that you use to determine what a final payment amount, reimbursement amount is going to be. So you can't hide from disclosure here. You must provide as much information as possible 
even if you do not have a specific dollar amount that should be put on that in-network rate file. So a little bit complicated, Dennis, but at least it was a message, again, to those folks who are saying, hey, we can't even populate our in-network file. Federal Department saying, oh, yes, you can. And again, you must do it by July 1st. Well, Chris, I really appreciate your explanation. As always, you lay it out very straightforwardly, but I do have to correct you on one thing. It's more than just a little bit complicated. Yes, well said. It sounds very complicated to me. So I'm sure it's a topic that we're going to uh, continue to, to talk about in, in the coming months. But before I let you go, I do have one other topic that I want to bring up with you, and that is the ACA exchanges. I think this is a case of hurry up there's no weight involved. Sure. We're in a hurry up stage right now because each year HHS you know, releases the notice of benefit and payment parameters. You know, those are the regulations that update and modify the rules for the individual market and the uh, ACA. And so now you know, we're looking at 2023 here and they just finally got that information and those regulations out a little bit late. But of course, the timelines don't change, so we have to hurry up to, to catch up. And that's causing some you know, consternation on our part, too, because the early bird qualified health plan submissions are due May 18th. That's just a few days away from the date that we're recording this podcast. And if I have it right, the initial submissions are due June the 15th which is just a few weeks away. So like I say, this is very much a hurry up situation. What do we need to know? Yeah, the, the only positive that I can see out of the fact that the notice of benefit payment perimeters are out a little bit late or, or not even a little bit late, a lot late, is that much of the proposed NBPP was finalized in this most recent finalized version of the 2023 NBPP, which came out on April 28th. And you know, just to report, like the big items that we feel that are important for HPA members, which many may already be aware of and have wrapped their heads around based on the proposed regs, and certainly now that the rules are final, is the standardized plans. So previously, the carriers were able to voluntarily offer standardized plans. Well, the Biden administration is requiring insurance carriers selling exchange plans through healthcare.gov and state-based exchanges that use the federal platform healthcare.gov. They're required. It's no longer voluntary to offer standardized plans for the 2023 plan year. Now, the hook for determining whether and when a carrier is required to offer a standardized plan is tied to where the carrier is offering a non-standardized plan. In other words, if a carrier is offering, let's say, an a gold HMO in one particular rating area, and that HMO is a non-standardized plan, the regs say that you must also offer a standardized gold HMO in that same rating area. So again, standardized plans, mandatory. Now, why mandate standardized plans? Well, one, HHS wanted to simplify the number of exchange plans that are out there. For example, for the 2022 plan year, HHS estimated that there's 106.5 plans that are available per exchange enroll E. And HHS was concerned, the Biden administration was concerned that so many plan offerings just 
can create, you know, choice paralysis. So this has led the Biden administration to uh, mandate these standardized plans. And the last thing I'll say on the standardized plans, kind of what are they? Well, you know, there's a set deductible, there's a set coinsurance, a set out-of-pocket maximum. There are certain services that must be provided or covered or paid for before the deductible is met, like urgent care, primary care visits, specialty care visits, some prescription drugs. So it's a cookie cutter plan that carriers now have to follow. And again, paying attention to where they're offering non-standardized plans must offer the standardized plans. The other big ticket item from the NBPP is the network adequacy standards. Now, as we all know, a large majority of exchange plans have narrow networks out there. And there's a number of reasons for that, of course, to keep costs low, to leverage those providers that serve a Medicaid population. And actually, in anticipation of this phenomenon of narrow networks possibly rearing its head, the drafters of the ACA included specific network adequacy standards that must be met. Now, these network adequacy standards tracked the Medicare Advantage standards that are still in play today. But again, it was included in the statute. And when HHS started implementing these standards, again, they looked to the MA standards. Now, the Trump administration eased these network adequacy standards, but the Biden administration is now swinging in the other direction. And the big changes in this 2023 NBPP is time and distance standards. And what we mean by that or what HHS means by that is, look, you must have certain providers within a particular time and distance of the actual exchange plan holder. And as an example, the regs give an in-network cardiologist. The regs say must be within a 75-minute drive or a 60-mile radius of where the exchange plan holder lives. Now, there is a list of other providers that are set forth in the regs that have different times and distance standards associated with it. But I think the cardiologist example is a perfect one and gives everyone perspective as to what it means to meet this particular standard. What it really means is you as the carrier, you've got to make sure that you have these providers within these time and distance places and and rates and standards to actually get an ultimate certification. So arguably a big deal from a network adequacy standard. The last thing I'll say about network adequacy standard, there's also an appointment time standard where, for example, 15 business days, an appointment has to be made for behavioral services. If a person or if a plan holder just wants a routine primary care visit, they must have actually 15 business days. And if there's a non-urgent specialty care visit, your appointment must be honored within a 30 business day period of the plan holder actually calling up the provider and saying, hey, I need this particular visit scheduled. So that's another thing that carriers have to be concerned about. Last noteworthy pieces, Dennis, there was an increase in the number of essential community providers that carriers must contract with. The prior rule was at least 20% of available essential community providers in a rating area must be contracted with. That percentage is now increased to 35%, which is a pretty high standard. Now, carriers can submit information to HHS saying why they're not able to meet this particular standard, but needless to say, you must try to meet it if you want to get your plan certified. User fees, if you're in a federal exchange state, remain at 
2.5% of premium. And the out-of-pocket maximums for 2023 will be $9,100 for single coverage and $18,200 for family coverage, all based on the increase in the premium adjusted percentage, which is always uh, set forth in the notice of benefit and payment parameters. So I know that was a lot, Dennis, but I at least wanted to give folks kind of a watershed of what was in that final NBPP and uh, hope if they have any questions, they know where to find us. Well, Chris, it was all very helpful information. I was taking notes here as fast as I could, and I couldn't keep up with you. So I'll be watching for the policy briefs coming up where I know you'll hit the high points and summarize and help us keep track of all of this information. And before I let you go, I've got one more, what I hope is a quick question for you, because I wanted to follow up on any word on the enhanced premium subsidies. I know this is another one of those hurry up and wait issues. What are you hearing about uh, the enhanced premium subsidies? Yeah, and to be honest with you, we're not hearing a lot. There's not a lot of discussion about extending the enhanced premium subsidies now that the debate and discussion over a renewed or skinny Build Back Better Act or Building a Better America Act, as we refer to it, has kind of died down. The discussion has died down. So it's actually looking a bit bleak for an extension before the November 1st, 2023 open enrollment date, because there are very few legislative vehicles left and there are very few legislative days left. For example, we have about three to four weeks here in the month of May. Then there's about three to four weeks in the month of June. And then there's only about 11 days post July until the November election. So very few legislative days, very few legislative vehicles. And, um, you know, it's really going to be a Hail Mary if an extension is going to happen before November 1st. So we'll keep our eyes peeled. But uh, it's looking bleaker and bleaker as the days go on. Well, I think uh, the term Hail Mary is an understatement, Chris. It seems that Washington's attention, at least on the legislative side, is on everything but these issues. So we'll keep our eyes out for it. But I'm like you. I'm a little pessimistic about it. Well, that covers it for this time. We put a lot of information in this month, Chris. So as always, thank you for pointing us in the right direction, for giving us what the headlines are and the issues that we need to be paying attention to. Yes, Dennis, always great to talk to you and always love providing information. Sometimes it's a little complicated. Sometimes I talk fast, but uh, want to get everything out for our members. And as stated, if folks have follow-ups, uh, you know where to find us. Well, thank you, Chris. As always, thanks for lending your expertise. And to our listeners, watch for the upcoming policy briefs with more details. And we'll talk with you again next month. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our policy brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming policy forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.